Welcome to Miss Lyrics Poetry Outlaws, the podcast for all things poetry. I'm your host, Catherine Owen. Hey, Outlaws. Happy February. I know some people find February depressing um, or it's just this Valentine's month where we all have to go out and spend lots of money on chocolates and flowers. Um, Well, I'm pretty sure my partner's going to take me out for dinner, so that'll be delightful once a year to have a delectable meal at a fine restaurant. Uh, Yeah, February is good for me because that's the month I get my PLR. And having lived a relatively tenuous existence, uh, financially speaking, for most of my life, I've had a couple of periods of time where I have been um, gainfully employed in a uh, receiving a regular paycheck fashion, mostly in the BC film industry. And once in a while, I get contracts for um, editing, and I have more students on a regular basis. And there's some more consistency that way. But often my life is very erratic and a putting together of bits and pieces, which sometimes is exhilarating and thrilling. And other times it is quite frustrating, especially if you get to the point where, as often happens in January, actually, when we all have more bills, I get more cancellations or promises of work that don't uh, appear. Um, And uh, also... It's just a tough time because, as I've probably said a few times now, uh, the economy is uh, in a rough situation and people aren't wanting to spend the money on luxuries like tutors or editors, who, of course, I don't feel ever should be luxuries, but there you go. And also there's that nasty plagiarism machine that people are using in order to write and edit their work so they don't think they need a human eye or mind on what they're uh, trying to accomplish. Um, I always saw myself as a collaborator in assisting students and writers, and I still do, to create their best work, which involves using your own mind, not just uh, using a piece of technology as a crutch. But there you have it. So February is PLR month, and that's public lending rights. So that is the uh, dividends that writers will get from books that are in the public libraries. And essentially, they'll survey the public libraries and you'll get hits. I think you can get up to seven hits now of a book in a library. And depending on that, and depending on how new your book is, I think they only give you 20 years in total now. So at this point, my first book will have fallen off their hit list. And then you get a check that is actually decent, sizable, enables me to pay my taxes every year for one, and uh, sometimes do a few other things, which this year will include going on tour. It's not as long a tour as I've done in the past. Uh, My longest tour was for Frenzy, where I went from one end of the country to the other, and I had 27 different dates for events. And yeah, essentially my whole life fell apart (laughs) in five and a half weeks. But, you know, no regrets because I'm a fool. Uh, (laughs) This is what I live for. What could I say? Uh, Writing and publishing and getting out on the road. 
um, and having that be the focus of my energies in the world because that's what I think I'm here for and what I do best beyond everything else. So I have a few anxieties about touring this time that maybe I didn't have in the past because the last time I toured was 2017, 2018, so six years ago for my book, Dear Ghost, and I had the tours all set up for uh, Riven and Locations of Grief, which came out in 2020, and of course I couldn't go on those tours. So six years is a good chunk of time, and a lot of things have changed. People have become more nervous and anxious about going out and being in groups of people, uh, whether that's warranted or not at this particular time. And so there's there's more neuroses around that fear of getting ill. Um, of course, nobody wants to get ill, but it's also part of being a human organism. So we do what we can, um, and hopefully we don't shut our lives down as uh, completely as we've been compelled to, because getting out to art events is, of course, a core source of nourishment for being an artist and, you know, being somebody fully alive in the world. But I think that, you know, audiences are going to be smaller um, and, you know, perhaps it will just be a little bit more difficult to feel the connections that I used to feel from going out on tour. And I hope that's not the case, of course. I hope that I'm pleasantly surprised as always. And when I went on my last tour, I decided that I was going to have a very low bar for what made me happy. <laughs> and uh, one of it was, was you have to just sell one book. That's, that's it. And, and then I realized that that's even not low enough of a bar uh, <laughs> because there's a, in, invariably going to be a, a couple of events where you might not sell any. And of course you want it to be uh, otherwise, but the, the realistic, you know, uh, truth is that a lot of times people might want to come out and hear a poet read, but they don't have the money to buy the book or they can't prioritize the money to buy the book, even though it's $20. And most of us, myself included, will go out for, um, you know, a sandwich and a glass of wine for that same price or more and not think twice about it. But having a book of poems that you might reread many times, hopefully, uh, over the years, it seems harder to spend that $20. So that's one of my anxieties. Uh, and the other one is that my body hurts a lot more than it used to. So it's not quite as easy to relish the thought of, uh, you know, sleeping on people's couches. Um, I have more of an issue sleeping, period. So... As we all know, even when we're in the peppiest state of youth, uh, traveling around and, uh, you know, bopping about in unfamiliar environments can be exhausting. So I'm going to have to transcend myself for art, which is one of my core mantras, uh, and focus on the book. Because this week's episode, and this is the intro to it, is going to be about why perform? What is important about performance? What are the yays and nays of performing? I'm going to talk a little bit about what I've learned from all my years of performing and what I like to hear as an audience member from a performer. I share a few quotes from uh, other writers on performing and why they do it and some clips from YouTube of various poets performing their work so that 
you yourself can think about all the varieties of performers and what you prefer and what you don't and what you want to do with your own work in the world. Because poetry at its core is an oral art form and it needs to be out there connecting to the other energies of existence and the people and the places and drawing from those sources. And that to me has always been that beautiful full circle of, you know, writing in your solitude and then you deal with all the potential difficulties and joys of bringing the book to fruition through a press and then you set up your tour dates and you get out there and you feel breath behind your poems as you uh, bond with those in the world who are also connecting. From the section on performing in the chapter called Reading, Revising, and Performing in my collection of 58 mostly poets on uh, all the aspects of being a Canadian poet in the world called The Other 23 and a Half Hours or Everything You Wanted to Know That Your MFA Didn't Teach You. The poetry reading is a public tuning. That's a quote from Charles Bernstein, My Way. Poetry is an oral art form, and thus it deserves, even demands, to be read aloud. Many poets have grounded themselves more fully in their art form through reciting to an audience. And when listening to poets recite, the audience is often transported by the music of the words and the beauty of the images, or challenged by the experimental approach to form, sound, or ideas. These days, there are multiple opportunities for poets to recite and listen to others read. From regular series like the long-running Art Bar Poetry Series in Toronto to special events and random guerrilla-style recitations on the street, many poets begin their reading experience with a stint at an open mic night. Okay, there's a section in there that I read in Season 2, Episode 16, when I talk briefly for about 4 minutes and 16 seconds about uh, performing poetry and mostly focus on uh, Catherine Graham's discussion of performance and one of her poems. So this is going to be a much longer discussion of performing poetry. So I talk later on in this section on how I began reciting and how it started to have meaning for me. Reciting poetry for me was eventually also a life-changing practice. When I started writing, I never thought about performing. A classic introvert, believe it or not, I had never felt the desire to get up in front of an audience, preferring to compose and recite to myself in solitude, apart from the fact that I was raised playing violin and I was compelled to perform in front of an audience, uh, often on the stage at the Orpheum every year, but by myself, no. However, when I was in my later teens, I started to attend meetings of the Burnaby Writers Society 
Here I learned that performing was de rigueur if you're a poet of any ilk. And my competitive nature stirring after listening to too many umming and awing reciters. I got up at one of the regular events at the art gallery and read three poems. It was harder than I imagined. Quite an out-of-body experience as I stuttered through them rapidly, hands trembling, and then sat down fast. Perhaps I wasn't quite as bad as I thought, though. His invitations to read again kept coming. From Evelyn Lau, both of us still adolescents at the time at a happening called This Ain't No Greasy Kid Stuff, Poets Under 25, with Alexandra Oliver, and in Victoria with Patricia Young and P.K. Page, the latter of whom was tremendously gracious to me, although I was likely far from mind-blowing as either a poet or a performer at that age. And then I say at the end, Touring leads to contact with a network of poets, and most importantly, multiple recitations from a book honors the oral strengths of the poems within. I have gone on eight cross-Canada tours. Now this will be coming up on my 13th. I believe I have 13 events for the 13th. One of which, as I've already mentioned, in 2009 involved over 27 events stretching from Victoria, B.C. to St. John's, Newfoundland. And whether I'm having sing-alongs of the Ballad of the Metal Men from my 2012 poetry collection, Troberitz, with small-town seniors, or reciting elegies in a wolf island Ontario cemetery as chickens cluck and a donkey braise, I know I am doing something vital to enlarge the art of writing in the world. And in turn, performing has changed me into someone less afraid, more confident in my breath, posture, and ability to project in all senses of that word. Hardly in the very dirt, but still like dust. All right. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Just because I walk as if I have oil wells pumping in my living room. <laughs> Just like moons and like suns with the certainty of tides. Just like hope springing high. Still I ride. So we started with part of a performance that I did in 2015 with the band Alchemy Chamber at the Media Club in Vancouver, and it was a piece that I specifically wrote for New Year's Eve called Begin with the Dead. We'll hear another clip from that at the end that includes me doing a chant. And you just heard a clip from My Angelou's Still I Rise. And later on, there will be a segments from John Berryman from Rudy Francisco, before that Aya, a teen poet, and then at the end Adina Karasik from Canada. And you'll get a sense in listening to these different ways of performing, which styles you like. Do you like the styles that are very sonorous and expansive and dramatic? Do you like the ones that involve lots of pauses and are staccato and contain a ton of breath? Do you like the ones that are more performance poetry or slam poetry style that have that particular lilting rhythm and emphasize the rhyme? Or do you like the ones that kind of rise and fall quickly and have this rapid fire or kind of almost um, discombobulated or, or you know, uh, ludicrous type of rhythm with the way that the poet enunciates or intones doesn't necessarily match the way that you would read the words in your head. So there's so many different ways of performing. 
I'm going to read to you a couple of quotes I found online about performing. There's this essay called uh, The Art and Awkwardness of Poetry and Performance by Rachel Kearney from 2016. And she says, having recently attended far too many poetry readings, spoken word events and open mic nights for any normal person, I've begun to notice there are certain ways of doing things, some which work well and some which don't work so well. So then she goes on to talk about the difference between spoken word and poetry. So as I always say about myself as a poet, I currently write for the page, but then I've learned how to take it to the stage. So the best performance poetry will still work on the page, I feel, though of course there's some oral art that just doesn't work on the page. And there's some work that's on the page that when you take it to the stage, it doesn't translate well because it's more poetry that you want to read in your quiet times, you know, solitary moments, or you have to reread it multiple times in order to process it. And so it doesn't transcend uh, or translate that well between the two realms. So Rachel Carney says, technique number one is the poet voice. We've all heard the poet voice. So what is the poet voice? She says, there are some poets, fortunately these are few and far between, who use their normal, mumbly, hesitant voice for reading their work aloud. Personally, I get annoyed with this style as it feels like the poet isn't enjoying the experience of reading their own work, that they don't take pride in the selection and careful placing of each word. And more importantly, this makes it very easy to drift off and stop listening. So I've heard uh, several proponents over my, you know, multiple decades listening to poetry uh, of this type of performance. Um, One of them was Gopo Singh and uh, yes, at the end of his life, he had Parkinson's, so he got very quiet uh, and very difficult to listen to that way. But he believed that poetry should be read in your regular everyday voice, and sometimes that seemed to be mumbling or droning, and that people should be able to listen to a poet read like that for as long as they would listen to a symphony, which I found seriously over the top in expectations of people's ability to concentrate But that's definitely a school of recitation. You just read the poem like you would talk to anybody uh, normally and naturally. Uh, Of course, this can also lead to, uh, if you're a nervous person or an anxious person, you can include some of the elements of your natural normal speech, which encompasses the anxieties and the nervousness, uh, stuttering, repeating yourself, um, going, um, going, ah, going, mm, uh, and also, uh, you know, you're, you're sweating and you're, you're, you're shaking a leg or you're shaking your hands and you're rattling the paper. So you're doing all those things that mean that you're not fully grounded. So it it can work, of course. Uh, does it work a lot of the time? Not so much. Uh, so she says, There are others who put on a voice which is so totally different to their normal voice that no one stepping to the room could possibly mistake it for anything other than poetry. This can also be off-putting as it can seem a bit pretentious and sometimes ridiculous. It can also create a dull monotone which requires extra concentration for the listener to actually hear the words, but it can be a very popular style and and then she presents some famous poets well-known for their poet voice. Probably the... um, most pronounced poet voice I ever heard was Molly Peacock. Uh, And she likes to uh, enunciate very clearly, have grand pauses after each 
phrase or line, as you will hear with John Berryman as well, and often make uh, gesticulations or expressions that are uh, over the top. Um, there we go again. Uh, uh, whether you like that or not, I mean, that's up to you. It's, it's very um, acting-based, and it definitely draws attention. Now, whether you can listen to that or you feel somewhat repelled by it because it seems contrived or pretentious is, again, your own interpretation. And she says that most poets have a certain special personal poet voice they only use when reading their work. It is slightly slower, clearer, louder, and more rhythmic than their normal speaking voice, but in a subtle way. It doesn't shout, this is a poem. And it doesn't create a monotone barrier between the poet and the listener, but it does give the audience time to hear each word and to consider the lines as they flow together. All right, and that is the ideal, I would say... Some of the poets that I've heard over the years that seem to have that ideal kind of reading voice where you know they prepared their poems prior. They're not just chatting to you casually on the street. And they're also not acting in a very extreme way. Uh, I would say uh, some of the poets who've struck me that way have been early on P.K. Page, uh, Patrick Lane, uh, and then later on Phil Hall, um, Sugoyette, those types of poets who have an energy surrounding their presence. So they're commanding when they recite. And with Phil, it was the addition also of him playing his banjo or guitar. I can't remember now, but he was playing uh, protest songs. You know, and of course, we have, you know, Bill Bissett with his maraca. And for him, of course, it's more dramatic, but at the same time, he has this way of drawing the audience in through the repetition of his ritual at the beginning of each of his readings. So there's many different tactics and techniques, but certainly being in possession of yourself and the work is the most important thing. So I'll talk about that in the next segment, the do's and don'ts or the yays and nays or you know, the what works and the what doesn't work and, and how to make it work better. So I'll end this section with Penn Camp. Oh, she's another one that I saw early on. And there's an entirely different experience because she is more connected to the spoken word performative community. And she has work that requires droning and chanting and repetition and these kind of choral parts. And it's extremely memorable. And so she's talking in a League of Canadian Poets a newsletter about finding the actor inside of you. Yes, the actor, but I think that it becomes so organic when you've done it for so many years. And you're essentially, you're acting the part of yourself and you're acting the part of your poems and, and that combination uh, to be loyal, to be uh, genuine. That's the aim. She says, reading your poem is a performance. It is not a lecture, a talking to. Yes, that, that can happen too. Um, I like John Pass's poetry a lot, but sometimes he would get into the over-lecturing feel prior. Uh, so you would have introductions to the poems that were much, much longer than the poems themselves. So you have to try, I believe, to find a balance between both of those elements of your reading. She says, it is a deep sharing of your creativity. Performance is simply communicating, telling your story to those who want to hear it. Believe me, the audience wants to be entertained. And this is 
deep entertainment. Uh, there's times when, as a poet, you can start feeling like you're a kind of semi-comedian, and I'm sure, you know, Billy Collins uh, doesn't mind feeling that way. But a lot of poets, most poets, I would say, want moments of humor, but don't want to be seen as, you know, general clowns or fools. The audience wants you to succeed to convince them to move them. The audience participates in listening to you. Your failure, your humiliation is theirs. The audience shares in your creation the gift you offer of your voice and your poem. That seems rather frightening, doesn't it? That everything you do matters to the audience. But the audience does demand, deserve, and require a level of respect uh, and focus and attention because that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to deliver your communication, uh, which is your gift. So Ursula Le Guin says, telling is listening. You have to listen to yourself first in order to be able to tell most effectively. Um, telling is a gift you wrap and present to the audience. It is a kind of magical transformation in which you share the poem you have translated from the ether. You transmit your piece into the minds of your listeners through your evocative presentation. How do we lift the poem off the page? When the words themselves, Penn Kemp says, are allowed to speak through you. They are loud or soft or squealing as you choose. Performance is rhythm. Yes, once you find the rhythm of your poem, the words speak you. And that's another element that I noticed in many of the poets that I love watching and listening to, is you get a sense that it's flowing through their body, the words, the sounds, the rhythms. And so their body will move. And I know my body moves when I'm reciting your hands and, and your hips. And there is a sense that uh, everything is participating in the creation of the poem in performance. Let the current of words carry you in your delivery. Once you find the rhythm, you can't just mutter the words or speed them along to get the ordeal over with. Again, transcend yourself for art. Sometimes we find it easy to write and edit a piece of work, but difficult to read it out loud. But, Penn concludes, when we have spent so much time perfecting the work, it deserves an audience. Right. And finally, what over the course of multiple decades have I not enjoyed when it comes to poetry and performing? And what do I love? And how do I do this myself? How do I try to do this myself as much as possible when I'm performing? So first of all, number one, I really dislike it when a poet gets up to the microphone and starts by saying, um, that's the first thing they do. They say, um, and possibly multiple times through the reading, they will say variants on, um, that's very distracting. The ear doesn't want to listen to, um, and I know as a poet, I've mostly trained myself out of such sounds, such interrupters. It's much more difficult 
as a podcaster because I'm talking in a more casual way. So I might fit in the so's or the ums or hmms, things like that. But when I'm reciting poetry, I try very hard to not start, certainly never start with an um and hopefully not put any in throughout my performance. So the second thing, number two, I personally don't like to see is I don't like to see the poet unprepared. Perhaps you might want to be spontaneous with some element of your performance, but getting up there, not knowing what poem you're going to start with, which one you're going to read next, which one you're going to finish with, in any sense, leafing and shuffling and making a lot of noise with papers, that's really problematic. Again, it distracts the audience. We already have enough issue with our attention span in this day and age. So if you're going to get up there and waste people's time, and you have to always remember that people have made the choice to come out in this afternoon, this evening event, to spend their time at the very least, possibly also their money, and maybe they've made other kinds of sacrifices to come to your performance, they don't want to see somebody getting up and going, um, and then shuffling through a bunch of papers. They want to be in some way, shape, or form able to transcend the rigors and difficulties of their daily life and be transported through the art form. So number three, things I don't like. Well, then there's your body. So what is your body fiddling with? Is it fiddling with the microphone? Do you know how to use a microphone? Uh, A lot of poets don't know how to use microphones. Learn how to use a microphone. Um, You should have your mouth about a hand's width so you don't pop your peas and you shouldn't be too far away and you certainly shouldn't be too close and figure out beforehand, you know, what level you want it or how to figure out what level you want it to unscrew uh, the um, little twisty part there to be ultra technical and let it slide up or down so that it can fit your height So again, you're not distracting. All right, Um, you know, pay attention. Are your, I mean, I fall prey to this all the time. My hands wave around too much. It's, It's fine to be, you know, gesticulating somewhat and be dramatic. But if your arms wave around way too much, uh, you, you, you look like you're going to take off. So again, uh, distracting the audience, uh, you try to lessen those distractions as much as possible so that you can be heard. I mean, some things you have no control over. I remember when my hair was excessively long and a man came up to me and he said, you should put your hair up. I'm, I'm distracted by your hair. And I just thought, well, you should close your eyes then, you know? I mean, that's absurd. Close your fucking eyes if you get distracted by a woman's hair or any other aspect of her beauty or, you know, whatever. A dude, his muscles. Uh, <laughs> listen to the words. All right. And uh, number four, well, I really don't like clapping between poems. It's a thing more with the spoken word community or or snapping or whistling. I much prefer if that happens at the end. Uh, So you want to end on some note that makes the audience know that you're ending. It's not just like a dribble and a drift away. It has some kind of dramatic climax to it. And please, I would say this is number five, uh, don't apologize or excuse yourself. Um, 
you know, this is five and six and seven. Don't apologize and excuse yourself. Don't say, oh, I'm sorry, these poems are so dark. And, you know, I'll try to cheer you up afterwards with a light, funny one. You know, most people who come to poetry readings are adults and they've been through all kinds of shit in their lives and they don't need you to patronize them by apologizing for reading poems about, you know, abortion or suicide or any of the other difficult things we go through, mental health issues, uh, giving birth and so forth. And, you know, that goes with not having to give extensive, elaborative introductions. You want to do some kind of anchoring, but don't make them into mini lectures. And try to create some kind of texture. If you don't have any texture, if you're just reading the same poem over and over again, essentially, uh, people are going to fall asleep. So try to create some texture uh, where you have moments that are incredibly serious and moments where you might, you know, evoke a laugh. But at the same time, these are unpredictable situations. So you cannot say if uh, you get hung up on the fact that here's where my laugh comes in and the audience doesn't respond that way, you're going to be taken off guard. So just try to go with your own flow. And again, transcend yourself for art. Try to get out of yourself. Uh, the poetry readings I enjoy least are the ones where the poet is pushing themselves into my face too much in the sense that they're saying, oh, I have a cold or, you know, oh, I had a busy day at work and so on and so forth. This is not, you know, the doctors, the psychiatrists. This is a place where people come to listen to art. So try to get out of yourself. And, you know, it, when you're traveling, when you're touring, there's going to be all kinds of times where you're super tired uh, you had difficulties with transportation, maybe your accommodation fell through. There's all kinds of issues. You know, maybe you haven't sold a book in a couple of readings and you're starting to get really miffed and, you know, even misanthropic, God forbid. So uh, you have to get outside of yourself in order to create a good performance. So these are some of the things I don't like to see. So how do I do the things that I want to do in a reading? Well, uh, number one for me is that I try to get enough sleep and I try to eat properly on the road, uh, not drink too much. Sometimes in the past I haven't managed that, but I think I will from this point on, yes. Uh, and, and just be in a physical, mental state of preparedness as much as possible. Before I recite, I always do breath exercises and I work on my posture I run through scales. I try to do various things to prepare my voice and my lungs to recite so I can project, so I can feel confident. I always go through the reading I'm going to do, and I make sure that I'm not going to be startled suddenly by the fact that, oh, there's a typo in that poem, or, you know, I repeated a word I didn't want, or I don't know how to even pronounce that word. You don't want to be taken aback like that in the middle. I mean, you're not going to be perfect. It's very rare. Uh, you, you know, there's moments where you might fumble over a word or forget a word, especially if you're reciting from memory. And you just have to try to keep going and flow through that. I always aim to start my performances with either a song or a chant or a poem I have memorized uh, often from another poet, so that I get up and I'm instantly in performance mode. I don't get up and go, um, and I don't get up and go, oh, hi, oh, it's so nice to see you. Oh, it's been tough getting here. Oh, all that kind of stuff. 
which is, uh, you know, unnecessary preamble. Uh, after I do the initial performing part and I've drawn the audience in, hopefully, into that energy channel, then I can say, it's wonderful to be here in Victoria, in Toronto, in, you know, Fredericton. It's, it's wonderful to be here. And you should definitely convey a sense of gratitude and appreciation for your audience, but don't make that the first thing. You want to draw them into the performance. And then, of course, I try not to read too long. I don't think anybody can listen to a poetry reading beyond 20 or so minutes, really. And I try to pace myself and provide enough texture so that people will keep listening. And I aim not to give overlong introductions to uh, hem and haw, to get distracted by sounds outside, uh, the traffic maybe, or maybe you're at a cafe and somebody's making a latte. Just go with the flow. Joe Rosenblatt used to, uh, he'd offer these funny workshops where he'd try to prepare his students for poetry readings and he would go to the nearest toilet because there'd usually be one in the room and he'd just go and flush it over and over. (laughs) And he'd come back and he'd be like, are you still reading? Do you still have our attention? So, and then you want to conclude by saying thank you and then end with a poem because you want to leave your audience with the reason why they came to hear you. So that's my two bits plus on poetry and performance. Stay fierce, word musicians. Poetry Outlaws, 
Stay fierce, word musicians.